Good morning, friends. Good morning. I'm so glad to be back with you again. Every time I'm here, I'm reminded of everything that I love about being a Unitarian Universalist. I am, feel especially blessed to be witness to your very beautiful and tender joys and concerns. I think um, sharing that and holding that space for everything that makes us human is what's at the center of congregational life. So I'm just so grateful to be here with you again. Um, I do want to let folks know uh, in my sermon when I get to um, a section, it's called Step Four: Light a Candle to Illuminate the Present. I am going to be referencing the tragic school shooting this week, so if that feels particularly hard or tender for anyone, and you need to step out at that time, know that that is okay. All right, I would like to open with a poem by Mandy McGlynn titled "Waiting for Now." Everything is about to change, and it already has. It will be, it was, it is. The dawn we eagerly await to end the long, cold darkness is already full sun far off in the east. Yet even after lights return, spring is months away. Thirty long years pass after his birth before the Messiah comes. Stones of justice have been tossed in the lake, but their ripples have not yet arrived, have not resolved into the kingdom already present among us. While we wait, let us seek in the darkness of the now and not yet for the treasures God has hidden there, the riches of the secret places only found by night. This is what is promised us. The wheel of life turns ever on, and darkness is a path of joy. I titled today's sermon, What Are We Waiting For?, knowing that the question can be read in multiple ways. Maybe the events of this past year caused you to read that question in a negative or cautious way as you brace yourself for the next tragedy or emergency. Or maybe you thought about the next small joy, something you can look forward to that will help you make it through the next day. A visit from grandkids, coffee with a good friend, that novel on your nightstand you've been waiting to seek your teeth into. Perhaps you're a big picture optimist and thought about the question in terms of our ultimate hopes. You're waiting for justice, peace, or liberation. Or maybe you read the question as one of urgency. What are we waiting for? There's work to be done, let's get to it. And I invite all of those interpretations and all of their tension and contradiction into this space today because Advent is a season of waiting. For children who excitedly punch out the little paper doors on an Advent calendar to reveal a piece of chocolate, it's about waiting for presents and Santa Claus. But its purpose as part of the Christian liturgical year is much more complex. Most literally for Christians, it is a remembrance of awaiting Jesus' birth and crucially a time to anticipate his return. So you might expect that the assigned scriptures to be a lot of shepherds watching their flocks by night type of stories. But at least for the first few weeks of Advent, what the Christian lectionary gives you is a lot of apocalyptic language. For example, the reading from Luke on the first Sunday of Advent this year began with, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will think from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. So clearly, this is a time full of paradox. 
It is the very beginning of the liturgical year, counting down to a story of new birth that starts with the end of times. This is why some Christian theologians refer to Advent as a kind of both-and time. Advent is a season for contemplating the already and the not yet. But there are ways to understand the season of Advent beyond an overly literal reading of virgin birth and rapture. Ways that speak profoundly to us as Unitarian Universalists in 2021. As people whose faith orients us towards justice at a moment in history when everything from our own health to our national democracy feels uncertain. So today, I'd like to offer a four-step Advent practice that will help us how to figure out how to endure our own collective and individual season of waiting. Step one, tell stories of life defeating death. This is the already part of the already and not yet story of Advent. For Christians, Advent is a time to tell the story of the arrival of a savior and liberator after a long wait under the oppression of empire and occupation. This is Mary proclaiming in her song from the Gospel of Luke, Luke known as the Magnificat, he has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And one of my favorite professors likes to remind us that in our capacity as finite human beings, the only way we can know what God does is to look at what God has already done in history. Advent is a time to do just that. To put it in less theistic, more UU-friendly terms, we can believe that the light will outshine the dark because we've seen it happen before. Not entirely and not eternally, but in glimpses bright enough to keep our faith alive. Even though we UUs don't believe in a single savior, Advent can be a time for us to tell the stories of moments when the world desperately needed saving and despite all odds, love triumphed. Unitarian minister James Reed was killed by white supremacists on March 11, 1965, in Selma, Alabama, where he had traveled to march alongside Dr. King and other faith leaders in support of civil rights. But death did not have the final word in Selma. The Voting Rights Act Reed was marching for was passed six months later. In 1973, over 40 years before same-sex marriage would be legal across all of the United States, Reverend Leslie Westbrook, a 27-year-old assistant minister at Arlington Street Church in Boston, would stand beneath a portrait of Unitarian ancestor William Ellery Channing and perform a commitment ceremony for two young women. During Advent, let us tell their stories. Step two is to name and disrupt justice. Well, this is the not yet part. This is a step for anyone who answered, what are we waiting for with a future vision of peace, justice, and liberation. Because while some Christian traditions interpret the future we're waiting for as the literal second coming of Jesus in a left-behind novels waiting for the rapture kind of way, we don't have to believe any of that to find meaning in the apocalyptic vision of not yet. See, apocalypse comes from the Greek word for revelation, sometimes translated as unveiling. Apocalyptic traditions have arisen in many of the world's religions, including Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Buddhism, Judaism, and Islam during times of great social and political turmoil. And many biblical scholars read the apocalyptic text in Judaism and Christianity 
as being about the destruction of oppressive and corrupt empires. The implication being that before we can destroy unjust systems to make room for something new, we must first reveal them as unjust. Franciscan priest and mystic Richard Rohrer writes, apocalyptic writing deconstructs the taken-for-granted world by presenting a completely different universe. It makes room for the reconstruction of a new vision of peace and justice. So to say that Advent is about waiting for the apocalypse doesn't mean we are waiting for the end of the world altogether, but rather the end of the world as we know it. Author and theologian Diana Butler-Bass has described it as a rupture rather than a rapture. And there are certainly systems in our own time that need rupturing, and systems that seem on the brink of rupture whether we want them to or not. Advent is a time for speaking prophetic words of truth that shine a light on our broken systems and patterns of injustice so something new can be born. For example, COVID is apocalyptic not only because of its death toll, but because it has revealed the cracks, inequalities, and, and inadequacies of our systems. Part of the work of Advent is to name those cracks, inequalities, and inadequacies for what they are. The results of poverty, racism, profit-driven healthcare systems, and gridlocked governments. In doing so, we deconstruct the world we have to make room for the world we want. Theologian Catherine Keller puts it this way, Might facing the apocalypse in its ancient intensity help us face apocalypse in our own time? Such facing would not mean mere recognition, submission, or acquiescence. It means to confront the forces of destruction, to crack open, to disclose, a space where late chances, last chances, remain nonetheless real chances. Step three, is to practice being in the dark. Lest we get too caught up in this empire toppling forward momentum of step two, Advent is also a time of darkness, silence, and stillness. It is a time to remember how much is ultimately out of our hands. In my experience, Unitarian Universalists have a much harder time with this part. We can speak truth to power, we can name injustice, we can put our hands to the plow, but that is no guarantee things will proceed on our timeline. We may work for justice and fail. We might fight for a cause whose completion we don't see in our lifetime. In reference to the great not yet of Advent, scripture reads, you know not the day nor the hour. Advent is a time of resting in uncertainty, practicing patience, and waiting for answers. Advent asks us to sit at the uncomfortable intersection of what we know has happened, what we fear will happen, and what we want to happen, without any real knowledge about what will happen. It is not an accident that Advent happens in December when our nights are longest. Advent is a time for sitting literally and figuratively in the dark. But the dark brings us both lessons and gifts. Poet Wendell Berry writes, to go in the dark with the light is to know light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. Using Advent as a chance to spend time in rather than avoid the dark is good practice for how we must spend much of our lives. It can be helpful in building resilience so we aren't demoralized when the arc we are so desperately trying to bend towards justice 
remains stubbornly stuck. But it also offers other opportunities, a chance to pause our busyness and rest, a chance to allow stillness into our lives, and a chance to listen to the quiet voice of the divine and our own heart. The darkness of Advent is, in the words of Mary Oliver, a silence in which another voice may speak. Step four, light a candle to illuminate the present. Thankfully, we don't have to spend all of Advent in complete darkness. Like many winter rituals and religious holidays, Advent involves lighting candles. In many modern traditions, the candles that make up an Advent wreath represent hope, peace, love, and joy. But it is the hope candle that is lit first and must burn the longest during the Advent season. In her book, After the Good News, Unitarian Universalist minister Nancy MacDonald Ladd defines hope not as some future-oriented optimism, but as an idea radically grounded in the present moment, writing, Hope, after all, is not just another version of optimism. Optimism tells a preordained narrative. It is an assertion that the scales have already been tipped towards triumph. Optimism is always busy absolving somebody. Hope is different. Like faith, hope is the exact opposite of certainty. It does not presume an outcome for good or for ill. It lies in the waiting moment when the tug from both directions is not yet fully resolved and when a great many things are still possible. It moves in the humble spaces that open when we allow ourselves to be uncertain and thus not fully self-contained. It is the possibility, though not the inevitability, of a better way. And while the Advent candles are symbolic, candles are also practical sources of illumination. Think really literally for a moment about what it means to light a candle in a dark room. Before lighting it, it's difficult to find your way, to see what is around you or who you are with. Sure, we can light a candle in remembrance of the past or the promise of the future, but when we're groping around in the dark, more than anything, a candle helps us to see what is around us right now, in this present moment. And for better or for worse, that is where we spend our lives, suspended between the memories of the past and our longing for the future, in this waiting, hopeful, uncertain present. And that is why step four invites us to light a candle so we can take stock of the moment and see our way through it. An image of this liminal space was revealed to me in heartbreaking clarity as I scrolled through Twitter yesterday. Came across a picture of a large group of people, many of whom looked like they were crying, gathered underneath a glass-enclosed bridge connecting two buildings. It turns out that building was McLaren Hospital in Oxford, Michigan. Justin Schillings, one of the four teens killed this week in another horrific school shooting, was an organ donor. Members of his community had gathered there to show support for Justin's family as he was wheeled from one side of the hospital to the operating room on the other side where doctors would begin the organ recovery surgery that would give others a new hope for life. As I stared at the photo, I understood Advent with new clarity. The picture was a candle illuminating the present. It depicted a moment suspended between heartbreak and hope, between the already of Justin's life and the not yet of the lives he will save. It was a moment in which a new world, free of the kind of violence that claimed Justin's life, is possible but still unrealized. And the community members who showed up 
standing literally underneath a bridge between death and life for witness to the living. So then this is how we wait. We tell stories of defeating death, we name injustice, we practice spending time in the dark, and we light a candle illuminating the present. But then what? Where does that waiting get us? I haven't answered my sermon's driving question because the true answer is that I don't know. I know what I hope for, but not when and if it will come. This isn't a magic advent formula where you complete the four steps and a whole new world is born. But after spending the semester totally ignoring my sermon on rest that I gave you in August, I promised I would not preach something I wasn't practicing myself. So I will end by telling you what was born of my own attempt at these things in hopes that it might inspire you to embark on your own UU Advent practice without certainty or agenda and see what is revealed. A few years ago, some friends from my UU congregation at home decided we wanted to find a way to mark the season of Advent together. We decided we would read the, read the revised common lectionary for each day of the season. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in a Christian church with a liturgical calendar, the lectionary is a daily compilation of scripture verses that guide worship. One from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and one psalm. Together we lit candles, read these stories of light overcoming darkness, and added our own from our lives and our Unitarian tradition. We saw our church and the community around us newly illuminated. We spent time in silence, wrestling with our questions, learning to be patient and still together. And into that stillness, we let another voice speak. On Christmas Day, like some miracle out of a feel-good holiday special, we each shared that we had felt called to feed people. A few months later, we installed a little free pantry on the steps of our urban congregation. We don't know how many people the pantry feeds. Donations come and go throughout the day, impossible for us to track. But I'm sure it isn't even making a dent in the problem of food insecurity in Washington, D.C. The pantry is not a world rupturing event. But just like Advent, is a chance to practice on a small scale the kind of waiting we're doing on a larger cosmic scale. I see the little pantry, worn off my own Advent practice, as a way to practice on a small scale the possibility of a whole new world. It is a symbol of radical hospitality and community care, of nourishing one another outside the constraints of an empire that deems only some worthy of the bread of life. It makes real in the present what we can imagine for our future. It is the promise of already and not yet. I'd like to end, if it's okay with you, by reading the poem I opened with just one more time. Reading for Now by Mandy McGlynn. Everything is about to change, and it already has. It will be, it was, it is. The dawn you eagerly await to end the long, cold darkness is already full sun far off in the east. Yet even after light's return, spring is months away. Thirty long years pass after his birth before the Messiah comes. Stones of justice have been tossed in the lake, but their ripples have not yet arrived, have not resolved into the kingdom already present among us. While we wait, let us seek in the darkness of the now and not yet, for the treasures God has hidden there, the riches of the secret places only found by night. This is what is promised us. The wheel of life turns ever on, and darkness is a path to joy.
may it be so. Amen.